she was going to graduate and had plans with the, the boyfriend until we're going to go do their life. She was a role model for me, such a driven individual. Mara, she had that intoxicating smile. Having no closure and always wondering is the most painful part of all of this. Where is Maura Murray? What happened to her? They had no tracks at all from the accident scene into the woodlands. You don't have any signs of foul play. People were watching this happen, yet she vanished into thin air. Was she running from someone or running to someone? If she's alive, then somebody helped her. This is beyond a missing persons case. Something ominous happened here. It makes you think that this is a serial killer. It's difficult to rule anyone out until you know what happened. You cannot trust anybody, her family, policemen, people who were on the scene. We don't know what happened. We don't have all these secrets. We don't know where she is, and we don't know where she was going, and we never named a suspect in this case. Where is my daughter? You're one of the best. You got the best. The hottest podcast in the world. True Crime Monkey. Thank you to all the new listeners out there tuning in to the new True Crime Monkey podcast. As you may know, we are dropping four podcast episodes today as part of Launch Day. Make sure to check out the other episodes on Cheryl Coker, Nikki McCowan, and Erica Baker as well. Hello everyone, I'm your host and True Crime Monkey, Jeff. Join me each and every week here for a new True Crime Monkey episode. You never know who might just show up as my guest host. So sit back, relax, and let's get into some true crime. The inaugural episode you're about to hear is about the disappearance of Mara Murray. This is, without a doubt, the case which I have investigated and researched more than any other, hundreds of hours to say the least, and still counting. I have traveled to the site of her disappearance, talked and interviewed with several of the players in this case, I have met the Murray family, Fred, Julie, and Kurt, and developed friendships with some of the researchers and investigators that have been on this case since day one. With that being said, it is important to note that it would be impossible to attempt to cover this case in just one episode. This will absolutely be a multi-episode series here on True Crime Monkey. The first episode is geared more toward those who may never have heard of the case, or are not extremely familiar with it. But for those that are veterans of the case, rest assured we will be delving into more detailed aspects and theories of the case in upcoming podcast series. I have never seen a case with so many rabbit holes and plausible theories as this case has. So with that being said, let's take a look at the case of the disappearance of Mara Murray. Mara Murray was a 21-year-old nursing student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst when she disappeared in the Woodville area of Haverhill, New Hampshire on Monday night, February 9, 2004. But the story doesn't start there. Mara was born on May 4, 1982 to her parents Fred and Lori Murray. She had two older sisters, Kathleen and Julie, an older brother Fred, and a younger half-brother Curtis. Mara's parents were divorced when Mara was only six years old, but she maintained a close relationship with both. Mara attended Whitman Hanson High School and graduated in 2000, 
where she was both the star athlete and the star in the classroom. Mara was a standout athlete in both cross country and basketball. She was also in the top five in her class academically and scored a 1420 on her SAT. The recipients this year are the five top ranking students in the senior class. The awards are $400 to Mara Murray. She had her choice of many colleges to attend and decided to follow her sister Julie and attend the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Mara decided to major in chemical engineering. However, Mara would only stay at West Point for three semesters. During a field trip to Fort Knox in Kentucky, Mara was caught shoplifting. It was a minor cosmetic item, but nonetheless an honor violation for a cadet at West Point. Mara would later have to go before a hearing board for this violation. It would be during this time that Mara would meet Billy Rausch, who would be acting as a liaison, for lack of a better word, between Mara and the disciplinary hearing board. Billy Rausch and Mara would become more than friends and began dating. Billy would play a major role in Mara's story, but we'll get to more on that later. Before the disciplinary hearing board at West Point would have the opportunity to rule on Mara's actions, she decided to withdraw from West Point. She would soon enroll at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and enter into their nursing program. The nursing program at UMass is known to be very vigorous. Mara was doing well at UMass and was on the Dean's List. However, Mara could not seem to shake some of the inner demons that she was dealing with. On November 3, 2003, Mara was caught using a stolen credit card to order some food from local restaurants. The local Hadley Police Department ran somewhat of a sting operation. The card number that Mara and possibly others was using was flagged while attempting to be used to order food for delivery from Pinocchio's Italian restaurant. Hadley Police informed the driver and when Mara came down from her dorm room to sign for the order, she was taken into custody. While Mora was not officially arrested, she was cited and her mugshot was taken there at her own dorm room. Mara later appeared before a judge and pleaded guilty to the offense of improper use of a credit card for purchases under $250, while stating that she got the credit card number from a discarded receipt she found in the trash. The judge was lenient, basically giving her just probation, and told Mara that if she had no further legal issues for three months, the offense would be removed from her record. But unfortunately, Mara would disappear before that three months could expire. The week leading up to Mara's disappearance has led to much speculation and has raised many questions as to if and how it relates to Mara's story. Mara worked part-time while attending UMass. Actually, she had two jobs. The first being a security guard at a local art gallery where another student acquaintance of Mara's named Sarah Alfieri also worked. You'll hear more about Sarah as we continue Mara's story. Her second job was as a security guard basically just checking in visitors at a neighboring residence hall, Melville Hall. Mara lived in Kennedy Hall. On Thursday, February 5th, 2004, Mara was working her shift at Melville Hall that was scheduled to end at 1 a.m. At 10.10 p.m., Mara calls her older sister, Kathleen. That call lasted 28 minutes, and originally Kathleen stated that it was just an ordinary phone call. She would later change her story in 2017 while being interviewed for an Oxygen Channel documentary. Shortly after 10.30 p.m. that same evening, Mara allegedly was seen in tears. 
A call was made to Mara's supervisor, Karen, who came to Melville Hall to check out Mora. However, Karen is said not to have arrived until after 1 a.m., and allegedly, Karen walked Mara back to her Kennedy Hall dorm room at 1.20 a.m. According to Karen, she asked Mara if she wanted her to walk her up to her room. Karen stated that Mara said, no, that's okay, I have a roommate. The facts are that Mora did not have a roommate. Also, the same night, at a time which cannot be narrowed down definitively, a fellow UMass student named Patrit Vasi was struck in a hit-and-run accident near the intersection of Triangle and Mattoon Streets on the UMass campus. He is not discovered until 2.20 a.m. Vasi spent nearly a month in the coma and states that he has no memory of the incident. If you've noticed, I've began to use the term allegedly a lot. And if you're getting a sense that the timelines just don't seem to match up, you're right. And it will only get worse, and will become an underlying issue and theme in this case. And we've only begun to scratch the surface. On Saturday, February 7th, 2004, Mara's father, Fred Murray, drives to the UMass campus to visit his daughter and to help her purchase another car. We went searching to find a car. So get her a car, you know, to, to go to do her nursing clinical trips and stuff like that. Mara's current vehicle, a 1996 Saturn SL sedan, according to Fred, has been smoking and, quote, running on three cylinders. Later that evening, Mara and her father Fred would have dinner at the Amherst Brewing Company, or ABC, to the locals, with another friend and fellow track team member of Mara's named Kate Mercopolis. After dinner and a few drinks, Mora informs Fred that her and Kate are going to a party on campus and asks if she could borrow Fred's car, a brand new Toyota Corolla. Fred says yes. The girls, accompanied by Fred, stop by a local liquor store to make a purchase and then drop Fred off at his motel. The girls then continue on their way to the party, or gathering as some have called it. This party itself has been somewhat of a topic of speculation. Where was the party? Who was the host of the party? The consensus is that the party took place at the dorm room of Sarah Alfieri, who worked at the same art gallery as Mara did. In the following days after learning of Mara's disappearance, both Kate and Sarah would claim that they could not remember any of the other guests who may have been at the party. Sarah Alfieri went as far as to allegedly say that she passed out on the couch and doesn't remember anything. In the months and years that would follow, rumors circulated that Mara left the party with an unidentified male around 2.30 a.m., some speculating that this unidentified male was a cousin of Sarah Alfieri. Mara was also alleged to have left her cell phone at this party and was without it for the remainder of the early morning hours, only to retrieve it from Sarah at some point on Sunday morning or early afternoon. But it was another event that placed prominently in Mara's story that happened about an hour after she left the party. At 3.30 a.m., while driving back to drop off her father's car at his motel, which would indicate to me that she was being followed by another car, which would then provide her a ride back to campus, not far from her dad's motel, Mara slid through a T-shaped intersection in Hadley and crashed her dad's brand new car. The resulting damage was reported to be between $8,000 and $10,000. She was involved in an accident in Hadley, Mass, 
where she went off the road and struck a set of guardrails. She was driving her father's new car at the time and did about $10,000 worth of, of damage. Who was present at that crash is a matter of some speculation, but we'll talk more about that in a future episode. After the accident, Maura got a ride back to Fred's motel from the tow truck driver towing the Corolla. Shortly after arriving back at the motel, using Fred's cell phone, remember, Maura had left her cell phone at the party, Maura would make a call to Billy Roush at 4.49 a.m. So she calls Billy and he talked with her, he calmed her down. Um, and then he promised her that he would call her back later in the day. Later that morning, now into Sunday, Fred rented another car and drove Maura back to her dorm. Unfortunately, this would be the last time Fred would ever see Maura. At 11.26 p.m. on that same Sunday, Maura would speak to Fred one last time. Fred assured her that the damage from the accident would be covered by insurance and he would not be out a substantial amount of money. Fred did tell Maura that she would need to pick up accident reports for the insurance company and ask her to give him a call the next night around 8 p.m. That call would never happen. Later that same day in the afternoon, Mara again gets on her computer and looks up information about rental properties in the White Mountains region of New Hampshire and later looks up directions to the Burlington, Vermont area. That same day at 12.55 p.m., Mara made a call to the owner of a Bartlett, New Hampshire condo rental. Bartlett was an area that Mara knew well and she had stayed there many times on trips with her sister Julie and her father. Around 1 or 1.30 p.m. that same day, Mara sent an email to Billy Roush saying that she loved him and she would call him back later that day. At 2.05 p.m., Mara calls 1-800-GO-STO, which is a reservation line for hotels in the Stowe, Vermont area. However, on this day, the phone system was down and callers could only hear a pre-recorded message. They could not make reservations. 13 minutes later, Mara calls Billy Roush, but he doesn't answer. According to Sharon Roush, Billy's mother, Mara left a brief, generic message, but said nothing of her plans to leave the Amherst area. Mara then emailed her professors and stated that she would not be attending class for the upcoming week due to a death in the family. However, there was no death in the family. That same weekend, the Amherst, Massachusetts area had received a large snowfall, enough so that UMass classes were canceled on Monday, February 9th. Shortly before 3.30 p.m. on that afternoon, Mara would leave her dorm room and make a stop at a Bank of America ATM and withdraw $280, nearly all the money in her account. Since the ATM dispensed only $20 bills, it is rumored that she had about $16 left in her account. Mara then went only a short distance to Liquors 44 and purchased a bottle of Kahlua, a small nip of Bailey's Irish cream, a bottle of vodka, and a pack of Sky Blue Malt, a bottled vodka drink. Contrary to what is commonly believed, the box of Frangia wine was likely purchased on the previous Saturday. The liquor store receipt, which would later be found in Mara's car, was shared sometime later by law enforcement, but was heavily redacted. Why redact a liquor store receipt? 
No one understands why. If Moore was traveling alone, why she would buy such a large volume of alcohol. A short time later that day, at 4.37 p.m., Mara calls to check her voicemail. This is the last known call made from Mara's cell phone. That same Monday evening at 7.27 p.m., a 911 call is received from Faith Westman in Haverhill, New Hampshire, to advise that a vehicle is off the road near her home at what is called the Weather Barn Corner, a fairly sharp, almost 90-degree turn. Westman stated that a car was in the eastbound lane on Route 112, but ended up in the westbound ditch facing westbound. Yes, the description is contradictory. It was unknown if there was any personal injury, but she can see a man in the vehicle smoking a cigarette. These details given by Faith Westman will not only later change, but become the subject of much speculation. Police were dispatched at 7.29 p.m. and are immediately en route. At approximately 7.35, a bus driver, Butch Atwood, who lived just a few hundred feet up the road, claims to have came upon the scene and saw a black Saturn off the road. He stated that the driver looked shaken up, but did not appear to be injured. I just asked her how she was. She said she was shaken up. I couldn't see any blood on her face. And she was uh, shaking like this. I says, uh, okay, I'm going to go call the police. He then offered to call the police for her. He claimed she said, no, don't do that. I've already called AAA. Butch would know this could not be true as that area still to this day does not have cell phone service. So Atwood continues a short distance to his home. However, he reportedly still does call 911 once he arrives there, although it's unclear if he made this call via telephone or CB radio. Coincidentally, it is around the same time, about 7.35 p.m., that a passerby, later known as Witness A, would drive by the scene and state that she not only saw the black Saturn, but also saw a Haverhill Police SUV number 001, which she also stated had passed her twice on her way to the Weatherbarg Corner location. She stated that the 001 SUV was parked nose to nose with the Saturn. However, she saw no persons at the scene. After pausing for a moment, she continues on her way. Haverhill Police Sergeant Officer Cecil Smith then officially arrives at 7.46 p.m. to find no driver of the car present. After allegedly speaking with the Westmans, Cecil Smith then walks to the Atwood residence and speaks with Butch Atwood. We'll go into much later detail about the specifics of that timeline, what happened, and what didn't happen at the scene that night in future episodes. Police on the scene, including Cecil Smith of Haverhill PD, and New Hampshire State Police Officer John Monahan do a cursory search of the area and find no footprints leading into the snow. The Saturn is then towed from the scene by Mike Lavoie, owner of Lavoie's Towing, but strangely, the car is towed to Lavoie's personal garage at his home and not to his place of business. Again, more on the whole towing debacle, including the fact that Dick McKean of Northland Auto, who actually should have gotten the tow request, showed up later at the scene The scene was cleared later that evening at 9.26 p.m. as a local suicide attempt was broadcast over the police department radio. More on that later, too. The next afternoon, Fred was informed that the Black Saturn, as Fred was the actual owner per title, was involved in a one-car accident in Haverhill, New Hampshire, and there was no driver found. 
a distraught Fred Murray then headed up to New Hampshire first thing Wednesday morning, hoping to find his daughter and answers to what had happened. Fred was shocked to learn that the police were not actively searching and were more or less treating it as a DUI walkaway. Fred immediately became his own one-man search party. On Tuesday, February 10th, after being contacted by Haverhill, New Hampshire police, Fred had also called Billy Roush, who was stationed at Fort Sill in Oklahoma, to inform him of what had happened regarding Mara. Billy allegedly goes to his supervisors in an attempt to get emergency leave to travel to New Hampshire to be with the family and help search for Mara. Bill's immediate supervisor, a captain, declined his request as Bill was out of leave time and Mara was not a spouse nor immediate family member. Bill also approached his CO, his commanding officer, which was originally inclined to deny his request as well, but eventually changed his mind and granted what is called advanced leave to Bill Roush, which he would later have to work off. But it was a phone call that Bill claims to have received while traveling through an airport during his travels from Fort Sill in Lawton, Oklahoma to New Hampshire that would add yet another unsolved aspect to the case. Bill claims that while going through security at an unspecified airport, he had his cell phone turned off. While his cell phone was off, he received a strange voicemail that Bill claims was, quote, a woman breathing and a possible whimper or something at the end, which we believe to be Mara. The message basically uh, in and of itself was just uh, a woman breathing and then possibly a whimper or some sort of noise at the end, which we believe to be her. However, the alleged call did not come from Mara's cell phone, but rather from a prepaid calling card. Billy's mother, Sharon Roush, claims to have given Mara two prepaid calling cards when she visited the Roush family for Thanksgiving at their Ohio home in 2003. Bill remained off base for almost two weeks. We'll speak more about Bill's travels while on this leave, with whom he met and where they went in later episodes not to mention Bill's latest legal issues and how they may or may not connect to Mara's case, much of which just raises more questions. Back to Haverhill. Several days after Mara disappeared, a search using dogs was conducted in the immediate area. A New Hampshire State Police scent dog was given a glove from Mara's car, a glove she was just given at Christmas and possibly had never worn, as Mara didn't particularly like to wear leather, to use as a source point for Mara's scent, although her gym clothing was also still in the car. The scent dog did pick up a scent and followed it to where it ended, near the intersection of State Route 112 and Bradley Hill Road, coincidentally almost directly in front of the home of the bus driver who claimed to have spoken to Mara just days ago, Butch Atwood. A full 10 days would pass after Mara initially went missing before an actual search began headed by Ted Bogardis of New Hampshire Fish and Game in cooperation with the New Hampshire State Police. A helicopter with FLIR, forward-looking infrared cameras, which look for a heat source such as a human body, and the New Hampshire State Police bloodhounds searched the area. They found nothing. On February 26th, Mara's sister, Kathleen, who has since passed, found a pair of ripped women's underwear on a secluded trail just off of French Pond Road. DNA tests would later reveal that that underwear did not belong to Mara. Near the end of February 2004, the police would return the items found in Mara's car back to the family, 
although they would later ask for some of the items to be returned back to police custody. And on March 2nd, 2004, the Murray family would check out of their motel and return to their homes. Fred Murray continued to return to the area every weekend for over a year in hopes of finding the clue that would lead to his daughter. The New Hampshire State Police, and in particular, State Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Strelzen, have repeatedly refused to make any information public regarding the case. In 2006, Fred Murray would end up suing the state of New Hampshire to release the records and what evidence they did have regarding his missing daughter. Fred was not successful with his lawsuit. I would like to thank everyone for listening to this inaugural episode of the True Crime Monkey Podcast. As I stated earlier, this episode is just an introduction to the Mara Murray case, mainly for those who have not heard about it or may be new to the case and just looking for a new perspective. I must say that we've only began to scratch the surface of the case with this episode. As promised, this will be a multi-episode series and we will dive much, much deeper into the many rabbit holes and examine the players and potential subjects in far greater detail in the near future. And also an in-depth review of the Oxygen documentary, The Disappearance of Mara Murray, which aired in 2017 and introduced many to the case. And while I do have some strong feelings and opinions regarding the Oxygen series, I do highly recommend watching it if you want to learn more details about the case. Also, make sure to check out the Mara Murray episode on the True Crime Monkey YouTube channel, where you can view the actual news clips for this story, as well as see many of the points of interest mentioned in the podcast. I'll also give you my personal take on meeting the Murray family in New Hampshire and searching alongside Julie, Fred, and Kurt on one of the many searches that are still being done to this day. Once again, thanks for listening to the True Crime Monkey podcast and see you on the next episode. If you have any tips or information on this case, I personally recommend contacting the Murray family at maramurrayfamilydirect at gmail.com or you can email me at truecrimemonkey at gmail.com and I will immediately get the information to Julie and Fred. Thanks for listening. Please note that the True Crime Monkey podcast is not affiliated with nor does it represent the Murray family. Any opinions, descriptions, or theories expressed on the True Crime Monkey podcast are solely my own and are not a reflection or representation of the Murray family.